Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for broadcast and publication at Christogenia on Saturday, September 15th, 2018. This is Bible Basics Part 5, a series of discussions that Sven Longshanks and myself are doing together for the purpose of offering white nationalists and other interested people of white European descent a basic overview of the meaning, scope, and purpose of the Christian scriptures, both Old Testament and New. And that is because they are certainly both Christian scriptures. None of them are actually Jewish. In our last discussion, Sven and I described the ancient dispersions of the Israelites into various places in Europe and Mesopotamia, from where they also migrated throughout Europe and Asia. This was all in fulfillment to the promises of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their seed would become a multitude of nations. The process began while Israel was in Egypt, continued through colonization from Phoenicia by sea during the Judges and Kingdom periods, and it was accelerated after the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations of those that had remained in the 8th through the beginning of the 6th centuries before Christ. The tribes of Europe, as we know them, and especially in Central Europe and and in Germany and even the Franks in, in the West, did not finally settle into the homelands that we recognize today until after the fall of Rome in the 5th century AD. So this immigration process of these ancient Israelites into their modern homelands actually took over 2,000 years. And on that note, we will introduce Sven Longshanks. Hello, Sven. Hi, Bill. Uh, Glad to be here once again. And uh, yeah, the series certainly seems to be going down well. I've had a lot of people saying that they're enjoying it. And, you know, people that that I didn't even know were interested in Christianity before have said that they're they're enjoying it. And, you know, for quite a while, people have said, you know, where can I find out more information about Christian identity? And, of course, I point them to Christoginia, but but people don't really know where to start because it's such a a huge subject. I mean, Christoginia has got a massive archive and, you know, there's nowhere that really says, well, we'll start here. I know you've got that little bit at the beginning, um, a a few paragraphs, but then, then it starts getting into lots of detail and and looking just at the beginning of Genesis in lots of great detail. So I think it is of benefit for us to just to do this this overview like this, working our way through the Bible and, and explaining the story and the historical evidence for it. And yeah, it certainly seems to be going down well. And just I was just thinking then as you were 
uh, reading out that introduction there, where it says about the the seed and the seed of um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is this is the main point of contention with with the Judeo Christians is is that they spiritualize this. And the promises, the promise that we were talking about last week, the the Abrahamic covenant, is through Abraham's seed and that can only be from Abraham's loins and the Judeo-Christians today will, will say well anybody can be Abraham's seed they just have to have faith in Jesus and that would completely nullify God's promise to Abraham that would make a complete mockery of Abraham's faith because Abraham's faith was so much he had faith that Isaac was going to give birth to all these nations he had so much faith that he was prepared to put Isaac on the altar because he knew that he could put him on the altar and somehow he would still be the father of, of many nations. And if these Judeo-Christians are going to say, well, anybody can just have faith in God and then they are one of these nations, one of these people that come from Abraham, it just makes a mockery of Abraham. And, and it says, well, you know, God was being very sneaky when he said that. He, he just wanted to put Isaac on the altar for a joke, I guess, or, or just, to, just, just to poke fun at Abraham. It, it cannot be the way that the Judeo-Christians put it. It has to be that it's through Abraham's seed. And Abraham's faith was that the nations would come from his seed. It wasn't any faith in, in anything else. And I think that's, you know, that, that's a really important point, I think, that, um, you know, that's the main contention, isn't it, with, with these Judeo-Christians, is, is that they spiritualize everything and they've actually got nothing to justify that with, as we're seeing here. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. I really am. Because, as you said, Christogenia is a um, a massive endeavor and is over a thousand podcasts and, and maybe several thousand pages. I probably, out of all my Christogenia sites, which are about a dozen sites, not including the forum, I probably have 30,000 pages online, I'm guessing, right? And and the forum probably doubles that with, with its number of topics. So yeah, it's it's a it's a um it it's a massive endeavor for sure. But you know, it's really difficult to encapsulate um two thousand years of biblical history. And that's from the fall of Abraham to the coming of Christ was roughly 2,000 years. And also 2,000 years more of, of modern history. It, it's hard to put that all into a three-minute YouTube. I can't do it. <laughs> Maybe somebody else is more talented, but to get 4,000 years and, and 1,000 Bible pages and, and all of the proof that we find in archaeological archaeology in the classics into a three-minute YouTube is beyond my ability. So that's why I have Christogenia. That's just the honest truth. But the sacrifice of Isaac is a very important topic, and we probably shouldn't get it distracted with it here. But it definitely needs to be discussed in a series and explained in a series. And perhaps a little later on, either this afternoon or next week, when we get to a discussion of Romans chapter 4, we can preface that with my explanation of the sacrifice of Isaac. 
Yeah, definitely. Because it, it's, it, it is a very important event in understanding the relationship between God and the descendants of Isaac. It is very important. I don't know if you have anything else to add to the um, introduction and description of what we've already covered. No, I think um, I think that was it. I, there was something I wanted to say in the, in the next bit, um, but I'll, I'll wait until you've actually you know got gone over that. It's to do with um, the, you know the, the marriage contract, which we'll be dealing with today. So yeah, sorry well, about well, that. I, in- Two programs ago, two in, in part three of this series, we discussed the promises to Abraham and how they were unconditional. And then um, in our last presentation, in part four, as I've said, we discussed the migrations of people from um, Palestine, which is also called the Levant, and, and that would include Syria, and Mesopotamia into Europe and Asia. And even those tribes that migrated in ancient times into Asia were are, are among the ancestors of today's Germans. They were the Goths, the, the Massagete and, and the Sake had had dwelt for a time, according to the um earliest Greek writers, in the parts of Eurasia, I guess I could call it, right? North of India and the Oxus and Jakarta's, Jaxartes river valleys. And that would be roughly correspond to modern day Kazakhstan, which is a much, a name found much later in history. And from there, they, they, they eventually came into, came around the top of the, Caspian and Black Seas and, and came into Europe at a later time. And and they're among the last waves of the Germanic tribes into Europe. And of course, the Khazarian Jews followed them by several centuries. So, yeah, we, we also have the, um, the, the East and the West Scythians, don't we? We have uh, the Western Scythians that, that made their way into Europe, became the Saxons and, and all these, all these other tribes that we've been talking about. And then there was the East, Eastern Scythians who carried on going East. And this is why we have traces of them in India, traces of them in China. And why you see uh, Saxa Sunni and, and all this word Saka that appears in, in, uh, in Buddhism. And you hear of these, the early Buddhas that, were, that had blue eyes and, and the name Saka, didn't they? Right. Buddha was, Buddha was a Saxon as well. And those tribes later produced groups such as the Mongols and the Golden Horde and, and things like that, in, in my humble opinion. I think that's borne out. Um, Dr. Matthew Raphael Johnson, he showed that recently as yeah. well, that... Um, you know the Mongols and the, and the Golden Horde that, that they were actually white and they were Scythians. So he, you know, he right. agrees with 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 you on that. Um, Matthew Johnson has recently done a piece on that and that you've covered, I believe. Yeah, we we did um, we discussed it the next day as well because I you know I thought well this is really quite important and and it's something that um, you know Christian identists should be interested in as well. So the, the next day well, I do a like a weekly live podcast with him and I, and I thought we would discuss it some more in that 
Yeah, and there's a lot of proof to show that, that they were white. Um, and Mughal just means great. And, there, and there's no evidence in Mongolia in, or in China of uh, Genghis Khan or all these Mongolian hordes. There's, um, you know, and, there's, and also in Russia, there's, there's no actual writings to suggest that there were these, these Mongols there or Chinese there. And there's nothing in their DNA either. So there's, you know, there's a lot of things that point, point to them act, actually being white. They weren't Chinese. So it's just, it's good to find other people right, that I bear out. I that's arguable, but we'll, it, it's no doubt they were originally white. There's no doubt. There shouldn't be anyway by, by anyone who takes an honest look. With that, it, it's um, probably meet or fitting to proceed with our, with, with our explanation of these covenants. And while it is not, Completely evident until the books of the prophets, when they mention it explicitly, the Sinai Covenant, or Levitical Covenant, was seen as a covenant of marriage. This is the old covenant, right? It was seen as a covenant of marriage between Yahweh God and the people of Israel. And from that point forward, the people as a collective body, were considered the wife, the bride of God. And the land in Palestine was chosen to represent the physical house of the husband. When the wife was removed from the house with the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations, that represented the act of divorce under the law. Today, we shall review that relationship. Yeah, I think it's also worth saying there, where you're pointing out um, Israel from that moment on was known as, as the bride of God, and Israel is referred to in the female sense. If you look at the names of the European nations, you know, they've all got female names. You've got things like uh, Britannia, Germania, Europa, Helvetia, Belgia, Mother Bulgaria, Hungary, they're all female names. And if you look up um, these patronomic, well, not patronomic names, but um, personified names of nations, you'll see that the, the non-whites, they've got either angels or animals or warriors, and all the European nations have got female names. You know, I, I don't know if that's just a coincidence or not, but we find Israel is referred to as a female, as the nation, also in Revelations where it talks about, um, you know, the woman, the woman with child, and and the only nations we find that are personified as 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 a woman are these European nations. So, and you never hear of the Jews, you know, talking about Mother Judah or, or Mother Jewry or anything like that. It's just not in there at all. So I think that's that's also a link that must go back a very long way. You know, some of these these words are you know they're Greek Greek words. So it's going back two thousand years that um, these names have have come about from. So I think that's worth pointing out as well. Um, well, if for nothing else, it 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 shows that the symbolism for Israel used in Scripture is a part of. Symbolism technically, typically used by Aryan nations. Definitely, I, I think symbolism is is very important. You know, it, it traverses the, the language barrier. Symbols that meant, you know, it could mean the same thing back then that, that it means today, and, and we'll still recognise it because it, it, it talks to 
you know, your subconscious. So I'm, I, I'm very into these, these symbols and, and the heraldry as well. Um, did you want me to have a read out, um, the basic divorce law before we get into this covenant where we're talking about the, the, the divorcing of Israel? Or do you want me to go into that later? Well, well, I mean, you could do it now. I mean, just so it's on people's minds to understand what divorce is in the Hebrew law and the implications of divorce in the Hebrew law. Okay. Because is- then people will better understand the, the implications of the deportations and the destruction of Jerusalem and Samaria. Okay, this is uh, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favour in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her, and write her a bill of divorcement, and giveth it in her hand, and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that she is defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord, and thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance." Now, it's going to be important when we get all the way to Romans chapter 7 to recall this law of divorce. Because in Romans chapter 7, Paul explains how it is that God can remarry Israel after Israel had played the harlot with all of these other lovers which is part of the Bible story that we will explain here in, in this program today. Yeah, it's important to note you, get, you can't, cannot, um, cannot marry the same husband again. So that, that's the important bit, I think, because it fits in with, um, you know, dual reasons for why Christ had to die and, and, and rise again. And also it points to it specifically just being for Israel as well. You know, it's a, an important point to, to make, I think. Shall I get into um, this, the basic covenant then, Bill? Well, yes, be my guest. This is from Exodus chapter 19, starting at verse 3. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thou shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. So basically here, 
Yahweh is promising that he will love and cherish and care for the collective children of Israel, and that they shall be for him a kingdom of priests, a holy nations, if they obey his commandments. If they are obedient to him, and the people said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is just like a basic wedding ceremony. The basic original, you know, 16th century English Book of Common Prayer wedding ceremony. First, the groom promises the bride to take thee to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and cherish until death do us part according to God's holy ordinance. There we have it. Until death do us part. Then the bride promises in exchange, I take thee to be my wedded husband and to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, sickness and health, to love, cherish, and to obey. Now the husband in the original wedding ceremony never, never, this would be feminism, never vows to obey the wife. The wife vows to obey the husband. That's the way it should be. That comes right from Genesis chapter 3, where God tells Eve that she will be subject to her husband, to love, cherish, and to obey until death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance. So the bride is compelled to obey the groom, just as we see in Exodus chapter 19. And in turn, the groom must care for and treasure the bride, just as we see in that same place. This is the traditional, patriarchal, and godly Christian marriage arrangement. The basic story of the Bible is that Abraham was given unconditional promises concerning his descendants, which were passed down only through Isaac and Jacob. Then Yahweh took a large portion of the people of Jacob and offered them an everlasting kingdom if they were obedient to him. Ultimately, they failed. So the covenant was dissolved, an account which is given in the books of the prophets. But we also see in the prophets a promise of reconciliation in a Messiah, a Savior, and a Redeemer who would come for those same people because even though the Levitical covenant was dissolved and broken, the Abrahamic promises must be kept by God, being unconditional. Paul explains this, by the way, in his epistle to the Hebrews. None of this could possibly include any other people, since the scope of the promises is only for this one peculiar people.
I think it's also important to point out that, you know, when God speaks, because he is, he is the truth itself, he cannot go back on, on anything that he has said. So that's why the, this promise to Abraham, it has to be kept. And, you, and we see instances in the Bible. There's one particular one that I remember. Um, there was an ordinance that nobody was to touch the ark apart from the Levitical priests and, and the ark. Uh, of the covenant is about to fall off this wagon and someone rushes forwards to to stop it from falling on the ground and instantly he's killed and that's because once god says he's going to do something that that can't be changed uh, he, even if you know obviously it was somebody trying to do the right thing he still had to be killed because he, because only the, the levite priest could touch the ark so anything that we see that god says in the in the old testament that has to stand true for all time and, you know, it's obviously this is truthful. Otherwise, they wouldn't be putting in bits like that, showing you that um, somebody got killed because they tried to touch the ark. It, it just all, all adds to the to the veracity of it, I think, because a lot of people, their concept of God, oh, he can do anything he likes. So, you know, why can't he just make all the all the bastards in, into children of God? Why can't he just make uh, brown people in, into white? Well, because when he speaks, when he creates something, that's it. It, it can't be changed. Because otherwise, he, he wouldn't be the truth and he wouldn't be God. And and let me read, in, in, light of just, uh, in light of what you just said, that God's promises are basically unchangeable and that God cannot lie. Paul explains this in Hebrews chapter 6, where he says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, because there's no entity higher than God. He swore by himself. In other words, he swore upon himself. He swore upon his own life, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise, meaning Abraham, the promise would indeed be fulfilled. It would be obtained. And Paul said, for men verily swear by the greater, men swear by God, right? And an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. In other words, in the New Testament is proclaimed the fulfillment of the promises here in Hebrews, in the Gospel of Luke, in in other places in, in, in the New Testament. So Paul says in this Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise, meaning the offspring of Abraham, for whom the gospel is intended, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. In other words, when God says something, the words cannot be changed. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. And there we have it. It's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for his word to be changed. And, and this is an important concept also because you mentioned it in our discussion, in our introduction here this evening or this afternoon, in, in reality, that the, um, well, it's evening for you, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that the difference, the primary difference that 
identity Christians have with Judeo-Christians is that to us, seed means seed. To us, father means father, a literal father, literal seed, literal offspring. To us, a tribe is really a tribe, a genetic family, which is bound together by common lineage and common blood. A father is a father, a tribe is a tribe, offspring are offspring, seed are seed, a nation it is a nation in the traditional Latin sense of the word natio, which means birth. A nation is a group, a wider group of people which are tied together by a common origin, by a common fount of birth. We don't twist the meanings of any of these words, and we cannot imagine that the apostles of Christ or the prophets of God, when they use these words, meant anything but their literal meaning. That's the difference between us and, and these Judeo-Christians who twist the meaning of practically every one of these words. To us, a brother is a brother. A brother in Greek is a, a, a male individual born of, of the same parents, especially of the same mother, that you were born from. We're all born from the same mother in, in the personification of the bride of Yahweh, as long as we are white Christians, because that is where we descended from. So to us, the language means what it says, and, and we don't have any psychobabble um, spiritual explanations for that language. Paul tells us what is spiritual. We're in the book of the, the epistle to the Romans. He says, the law is spiritual. And the law of God does not permit men to a corrupt to corrupt his creation. We see um, parallels to that to to God only being able to speak the truth. I, I think you know with with kings and, and with monarchies when they make laws they're not they, they can't change those laws once it once it's been said it, it can't be changed and you even see that in um, in the book of Esther the king makes his law but he can't go back on that he can't just say well well I'll change the law I made a mistake. He has to try to make a new law that, that may make a change to it. And also when you see um, uh, when Isaac makes his blessings to Jacob and uh, he thought he was actually blessing Esau, he, could, he couldn't change that. It, it was done. Uh, he couldn't undo it. So we see, I think we see parallels in the, in the Old Testament as well with the characters in it and, and also with the monarchy, you know, trying to be, trying to be like God where God cannot change his word. You know, it's just more proof well, of it to me. I'm sorry. I could never accept the book of Esther as being canonical. Well, However, it that. is true that the Persian kings could not change their laws. And that is mentioned in Herodotus. That the Persian kings, the kings of Persia were forbidden from changing any of the laws of, of their predecessors. I think it's actually the, 
the same for all monarchies as well, because the the bill that we have for actually expelling the Jews from England, that is still on the books. They can't take that off the books. They've just started ignoring it, which goes against all tradition, because all these other obscure laws and bills that they made years ago that they still follow for tradition, but they've chosen to ignore that one. Uh, I don't know when it came about that they decided that they could just start ignoring these things, but I think it's probably the same for all monarchies, going, going back to that person. I'll tell you when. I, I think I could tell you when. The, the, the English rulers, because it started with Cromwell, not with the kings, decided that they could start ignoring laws when they disputed about whether or not the Jews should be officially admitted to England. And of course, there were already many Jews in England who, who could not practice their religion openly for fear of being exposed and run out. Well, when they debated that in the time of Cromwell, they could not come to a conclusive decision. So Cromwell simply decided to ignore the laws and admit the Jews, and that became the status quo. So in my opinion, that's when the, the English rulers decided that they could start just ignoring laws. Just ignore it and see what happened, I guess, was uh, his idea. Yeah, right. Ignore it and the Jews took over. I mean, what the yeah. Certainly didn't okay. turn out well. The first place in Scripture that the marriage relationship of Israel to Yahweh is explicit is in the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 3. Okay, so it's Jeremiah 3, verse 12. Go and proclaim these words towards the north, and say, Return, thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you. For I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger for ever. Only acknowledge thine iniquity, that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God, and has scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree, and ye have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you one of a city, and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Now, First, let's notice that Jeremiah is speaking and was told to speak towards the north. In, in the time of the reigns of the Assyrian kings, Tiglath-Pileser, Tiglath Sargon II, Sennacherib, um, Esarhaddon, and, and probably even one or two others, the Children of Israel, the most of the people from the so-called Northern Ten Tribes, the House of Israel, along with 46 of the fenced cities of Judah, most of the people of the countryside of Judah, were taken into Assyrian captivity and planted around 
the Caucasus Mountains and northern Mesopotamia in the region around the Black and Caspian Seas. Now, we discussed this last in our last presentation at length, but this verifies that 60 to 80 years later, which is when Jeremiah is writing these words, that's where the children of Israel are said to have gone. And by that, we, we can identify them and know who they are. These are the people that Josephus, 600 years, 700 years later, 700 years after Jeremiah, maybe a little more than that, had said were an innumerable multitude beyond the Euphrates, north of the Euphrates. So here we see that Yahweh God says, I am married unto you, that they are his wife, and he is beckoning them to return to him. And of course they don't. And, and there are other prophecies which inform us that they don't and they can't. It's the symbolism here that is important because eventually they do return to him when they become Christians. And I will take you one of a city and two of a family and I will bring you to Zion. That's not necessarily the Zion in Palestine. That is that appointed place that we read about in our last presentation in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10, I believe it's in, where God promised David that the children of Israel would have another home from, where, from which they would not move again. This similar language in Hosea, which paints a similar description. And this is very important language because it's, it's quoted by both Paul and Peter in relation to the people to whom they brought the gospel. From... Um, Hosea chapter 1, we see a message of separation and then a promise of reconciliation. And then after that, in Hosea chapter 2, we see a message that the children of Israel were going to go after all of these false gods in their pagan religion. And in spite of that, that they would be remarried to God. At the beginning of Hosea, Hosea was told, at the very beginning of the book, Hosea was told to take a wife of a whore. And that whore represented Israel. And he had children with her. And those children, God told Hosea what to name those children. And the names of those children signified stages of God's relationship with Israel. So if you want to read from Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1 verse 8. Now when she had weaned Lorahama, no mercy, she conceived and bare a son. Then so said, the name Loruhama, Loruhama means no mercy. Hosea, I'm sorry, Sven. Hosea is writing 
around the same time that Isaiah began writing, which is around 743, 745 BC, somewhere in there, Isaiah wrote up until perhaps 690-something, 700 B.C. Hosea's ministry did not last quite that long, but Hosea is writing as the last um, segments of the children of Israel, which is Ephraim and Manasseh and and the the, um, people taken out by Sargon II, are about to be deported by the Assyrians, and Samaria was destroyed around 722 BC by Sargon II. And there's actually an ancient inscription that when he took, when he destroyed Samaria, in one campaign, there were many campaigns, but in one campaign against Samaria, he removed over 22,000 Israelites and deported them to, to the cities of the Medes. Now, there were many other deportations before and after that, but that's just one campaign to give you an idea of some of the numbers and some of the archaeological evidence of, of this. So Jose is probably writing this around 740, 745 BC. Some of the Israelites beyond Jordan and some of the northern tribes in Syria and Galilee had already been deported, but Hosea is selected at this time to warn the rest of the rest of Israel what was going to happen to them. So Loruhama means no mercy. That child's name means that God would not have mercy on Israel. And then in the next verse, we're going to see the name Lo-Ami, which means not my people. And, and that figures into what's going on here as well. So I'm sorry, you might want to start back at verse 8. Well, I'll just, I'll just say also, I think in that record of removing the people from Israel, it also tells you what sort of people they were. You had artisans, metal workers, craftsmen, you know, highly, highly skilled people, basically. Uh, just right. These idea. weren't backward shepherds. No. This was a great society. Just a, a point worth, worth bearing in mind. Uh, shall I begin back at uh, verse 8? Yeah, sure. Verse 9. Now, when she had weaned Loruhama, which means no mercy, she conceived and bare a son. Then said God, call his name Loami, which means not my people, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, There it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Now, what did Paul promise? His, his, the people to whom he wrote his epistles to. What did he promise that they would have upon accepting Christ? He, he promised that they would have huiothesia, 
Queothesia in Greek, right? Now, the King James Version, unfortunately, translates that as adoption. But it doesn't truly mean adoption. And I explain that at length in my papers. It truly means the position of a son. Now, you could set, there are two ways to grant someone the position of a son. First, you could adopt somebody who is not a son. The, the Greek term for that is eispoiesis. Eispoiesis means a making into. So in that context, it refers to a making into a son. That's not the word which is found in the New Testament. The word found in the New Testament is weothesia. You can have a son that you disown, that you do not give an inheritance to. When the children of Israel were put away for their sin, they were called lo ami, which means not my people, or lo ruhama, which indicates they would have no mercy. They were being divorced by God. They were being put off by God. But in Christ, when they accept the gospel of Christ and repent, they would be given huiothesia. They would be returned to their rightful position as sons. Even Paul in Romans chapter 9 says that the sonship or the position of sons, which the King James translates as adoption, is for Israel. And that is true. Only people who were sons were promised to have this position as sons upon their repentance. And this is what we're reading here in Hosea chapter 1, verse 10, where it shall be said to them, in the place that it was said unto them, ye are not my people. Unto them, the them there are the children of Israel who were disowned by God. You can't apply this to anybody else. In the place that it was said unto them, ye are not my people. Therefore, there it shall be said unto them, meaning unto those same children of Israel who were disowned by God. There it shall be said unto them, ye are the sons of the living God. Who else can we fit into this equation? Nobody. Nobody else. In ancient Palestine, the children of Israel were disowned by God, and they were taken away by the Assyrians. In that same place, in ancient Palestine, we see the coming of Christ, the offer of reconciliation to those same Israelites that had been taken away, and they would be said to be the sons of the living God. So, the apostles go to Europe. It's that simple. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together. It doesn't say that anybody else would be gathered with them. And they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And some of this is allegorical, and they shall come up out of the land. They shall arise back to the position of children of God. For great shall be the day of Jezreel. And that word, 
Jezreel means God sows. very close to israel as well isn't it jezreel israel but there's the judeo-christians they say about this they say um they say what it's saying here is it it means the gentiles because it's saying uh you who are not my people will now be my people and they try and say well this is talking about the gentiles because they were never god's people and yet but they're twisting it they're twisting it they're it doesn't say it it's not speaking to non-israelites they they try and say it's a prophecy don't they but but just if you look here though in verse 10 straight away it says yet the number of the children of israel shall be as the sand of the sea and that's a reference to the abrahamic covenant that these nations would come from israel Yes, Tell me anyone else. Yes, it is. The Gentiles in, in the New Testament really are Israel and nobody else. The nations that were to receive the gospel of Christ really are Israel and nobody else. And I could discuss every single passage intelligibly with very simple language, without twisting the meaning of anything. In the place where it was said to them, Okay, who's the subject? The subject is the children of Israel. In the place where it was said to the children of Israel, ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, the children of Israel, ye are the sons of the living God. Let's properly apply the pronouns to the correct subject, because there is no other subject here. The Judeo-Christians twist everything, and they leave out words, and, and they leave out portions of statements, and they build their own private paradigm out of half statements, or statements with missing words, or statements with words taken out of context. And in Christian identity, We're not taking anything out of context. We're accepting this context with honesty. We see in Hosea chapter 2 that these people who were being um, rejected by God, not my people, who were being put off out of their homeland in the captivity of the Assyrians, We see in Hosea chapter 2 that these people would be pagans. They would not be Christians or Jews or anything like that, or, or even ancient Hebrews, that they wouldn't maintain the Israelite religion when they were put out of their land. And it says in Hosea chapter 2, from verse 13, And I will visit upon her the days of Balaam, where she burned incense to them. Balaam is plural for Baal, because there were many Baals in the ancient world. Baal is just another Hebrew word for Lord, and it was a word used to describe their idolatry. And she decked herself with earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers, those other husbands that she wedded herself to, the pagan idols, and forgot me, saith the Lord. For I will take the names of Baalim out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And then 
I don't, you might want to read the message of reconciliation, which comes soon after that in Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2, verse 19, And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yeah, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness, and in judgment, and in loving kindness, and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth, and the earth shall hear the corn, and the wine, and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel, and I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy, and I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. Now, here we have the same subject, the children of Israel. Yahweh was married to the children of Israel, but here there is a promise of a future marriage to those same children of Israel, not to anyone else. And we hear that, we see that word Jezreel again, which means God sows, because they are his people, and I will sow her unto me in the earth. That means that he will make those people of Israel grow and multiply, just like he had promised Abraham at the beginning. And I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. So we connect that right back to what we just read in Hosea chapter 1, verse 8, where the word loruhama means no mercy. Now he's promising to have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy that can only describe those same children of Israel who were taken away in the Assyrian captivity. And I will say unto them that were not my people, meaning those people described in Hosea chapter 1 verse 9, those same children of Israel who were put off by God, thou art my people. And they shall say, thou art my God, meaning that they are going to accept the gospel of Christ and repent, because, as we shall see a little later in this presentation, in the New Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel are the bride of Christ, especially in the Revelation, in Revelation chapter 22. And Christ is described as the bridegroom. Why would Christ be described as a bridegroom? For one reason, because he is the incarnation of that God who promised to betroth Israel forever, which we read here in Hosea chapter 2. This um, divorce, this rejection by God of these children of Israel for their disobedience and, and their lack of fidelity to him because they worshiped false gods is also found in Isaiah chapter 50. How, what, where was, what was the um, time gap between Isaiah and, uh, and, and Hosea? 
just before I, I read the verse, Bill. Isaiah, Isaiah and Hosea, are they start writing around the same time, in the time of Jeroboam II, the king of Israel, um, the son of Joash. And Hosea doesn't, his ministry doesn't go on for very long. It's actually pretty brief. Isaiah, his ministry, he starts writing um, around the same time. And he's in Judah. He's not in Israel. So he dates his writing by kings of Judah rather than the kings of Israel. Hosea is in Israel. His his ministry is for a short time. He may have died before the captivity or been taken away in the captivity, one or the other. Isaiah is in Judah prophesying many of the same things for Israel that Hosea had prophesied. But Isaiah is also a prophet to Judah and um, deeply engaged with the king Hezekiah, who ruled Israel, uh, I'm sorry, who ruled Judah until about 698 BC. And Isaiah's ministry ends sometime around then, or perhaps shortly before the um, final, the end of the final siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians, and that siege, of course, had failed. Um, Isaiah prophesied that failure of that siege. However, Isaiah's ministry is in two parts. The first 40 chapters of Isaiah are aimed at Israel and they're being deported by the Assyrians and at Judah and what's ultimately going to happen to Jerusalem. And then the second part from around chapter 41 of Isaiah is a, a series of prophecies that very few Christians understand because you must understand Christian identity to understand those last um, 25 chapters of Isaiah, or 26, I believe, chapters of Isaiah. And they are aimed at the children of Israel who are already in their dispersions. So they are, are, they are addressed to the islands and the Isles of the West, which is also coastlands. That word can also mean coastlands. Those chapters, that second part of Isaiah, which the Jews and a lot of the Judeo-Christian commentators follow them, think is a different Isaiah. It's the same Isaiah, but it's just a different prophecy aimed at a different audience. So this uh, chapter 50 that I'm just about to start reading from, this, this was aimed at Israel that had already been removed off. Absolutely. Okay, this is Isaiah 50 from verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves, 
and for your transgressions is your mother put away. And, and let me explain that bill of divorcement. Okay, a bill of divorcement was a writing that a man gave his wife. Back in those days, the man was the king of his own house. He didn't have to answer to any courts or to any municipal jurisdictions about what he did with his own house and his own family. So when a man divorced his wife, he just put her out of the he just put her out of the house. Said, "Get lost, get out of here. I'm uh, I'm tired of your nagging or whatever for whatever reason. It wasn't always righteous." But all he had to do was put her out of the house. That's the act of divorce in the ancient world. But because men also had nefarious motives, quite often, quite frequently, men had nefarious motives or they were vindictive, the law of divorce concerning a bill of divorcement was aimed at protecting the woman because a woman put out of her husband's house who had no proof that her husband put her out was at the mercy of nature. She couldn't go. No other man would take her in. Any other man who took her in could be accused of adultery and stoned. So you wouldn't want to take in a stray woman. The woman would have no place to go being put out of her husband's house, no place safe to go, because the husband, being vindictive, could just accuse her of committing adultery with another man. And her being found in another man's house, they would both be liable to the death penalty. So he was required to write a bill of divorcement for her protection so that she could take the bill of divorcement and go to a neighbor's house or a friend's house and say, hey, my husband put me out of my house. It, it's, it, it's damp. It's, I'm in danger. I'm going to be robbed. I'm going to be raped. I'm going to be kidnapped. Will you take me in until I can find a place to go? Or will you take me in and I can work for you? Or whatever, whatever. That bill of divorce would be a guarantee that the man can take her into his house without being accused of committing adultery. That's why the bill of divorce is a law in the Old Testament. But the only issuer of the bill of divorce was the first husband. There was no higher authority within that man's house. He answered to nobody else. So, the act of divorce is simply putting the wife out of the house. The bill of divorce only records the act. That's all it does. It only acknowledges the act on the part of the man who makes the acknowledgement. That's all it does. So we can't confuse the modern feminist societies regulations for marriage and divorce with what actually went on in the ancient world where the man did indeed have full control of his household so in effect what you've so got here as I say so what, you, 
what you've got here, you've got, you've got Israel's been kicked out and, and then you've got the bill of divorce being thrown after her by Isaiah. Well, well right. Not only by Isaiah, but by Hosea. I, I mean, the bill of divorce is basically in Hosea and Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel. But Yahweh's challenging them. Yahweh here, God here is challenging these children of Israel to come up with this bill of divorce, right? Because if they can't produce it, they're liable to the death penalty. Right, right, I've got you. I was thinking this was actually the bill of divorce when he was saying this. Right, if they can't produce it, they're, they're liable to the death penalty because they're being found with worshiping other gods. They're with other husbands. Now, later, Judah was also divorced, but they couldn't come up with a bill of divorce either. And that's evident in Jeremiah chapter 33. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 23. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Considerest thou not what this people have spoken, saying, The two families which the Lord hath chosen, he hath even cast them off. Thus they have despised my people, that they should be no more a nation before them. And, and the they there, if we go back and read the context, the they there are the Babylonians and the other nations surrounding them who, who had um, joined with the Babylonians as subject states or as mercenaries and, and had conquered the children, the, the remnant of the people of Judah and leveled Jerusalem. Well, God is saying that that was his hand in that, that he cast them off. So he permitted those nations to do that. But nevertheless, he's chastising those nations because they have despised my people. So there's a two-pronged fork there. And, and that's a whole different story that we probably shouldn't get distracted with. But the, the, the reason why we illustrate this passage is because it's an acknowledgement that there were two families which God had chosen. They were Israel and Judah, and that he did indeed cast them off. That's what's important to acknowledge there. There are other relevant passages. Yeah, we've got uh, Isaiah 43, 1. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. Now, now this passage is aimed at those nations, those children of Israel dispersed abroad in the isles and coastlands of the, of the West. And many of them were in the north at this time, but many of them were indeed already in the west. Some of them for centuries and centuries. Now, Yahweh is saying that he is going to redeem them. And, you, you know, you would said that God never changes his mind. His promises are immutable. In Romans chapter 4, Paul says that he calls things existing that don't yet exist. 
but he says they exist. So even though this redemption didn't happen for another 700 years, here it's being stated as a matter of fact. Now, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When a man takes a wife, he calls her by his own name. When a man takes a wife, she... Today we need legal approval under our oppressive government to do this. But back then, when a man took a wife, he just started calling her by his own name. And that would be how his wife was known. So your wife took your family name. And you didn't need government forms or or, or marriage certificates and, and social security changes in order to do that. Those agencies didn't exist. So Isaiah wrote this after the Assyrian deportations of Israel. And once again, Yahweh promises to redeem Israel. The deportations only symbolize the punishment of the wife for her disobedience as well as fulfill all those prophecies that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Ephraim and Manasseh would become many nations, a multitude of nations. They certainly couldn't do that in Palestine. They couldn't become as the sand of the seashore in Palestine. The land in Palestine, without artificial intervention, really can't support more than a few million people. It is really just a, a, a coastline to push off from the beach. When you when you really look at it, it's just that thin strip of land there. And really, it is just for pushing off from that beach and going out and colonizing other areas. Really, well, right. when you think about it, perfectly, right. perfect, perfect place for that. And that's from where Europe and North Africa was was indeed colonized by those people. Jeremiah writes about a hundred years after Isaiah, perhaps as little as 70 years after Isaiah, but I believe Jeremiah probably started writing in the 620s BC and maybe a little sooner, and Isaiah probably wrote until at least close to 700 BC, but not much later. So by this time, it, it, the, the uh, people of Israel have all been moved to the north and some of them have started moving away. And has, has Judah been removed to Babylon by now? Um, okay. The chapters in Jeremiah, and this could be proven beyond doubt, the chapters in Jeremiah are out of order. And when you compare Jeremiah in the King James Version, perhaps, with, which is based on the Jewish Masoretic text, with Jeremiah in the Septuagint, which is, of course, a, a much, much older Greek translation, probably dates to around 250, 280 BC, the chapter order is drastically different. 
in those two editions of Jeremiah. Now, other books also, Ezekiel and Daniel, both have chapters which are out of order. I hope someday in the not-too-distant future to do commentaries, more official commentaries than I've done in the past, and much more fuller, to do commentaries on these books and to put them in the correct chapter order when I do the commentaries. But Jeremiah chapter 33 is after the destruction of Jerusalem. This is Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11. I think it's still awaiting the destruction of Jerusalem. Jeremiah chapters 30 and 31. I'm not entirely certain. Okay, well, this is uh, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee, Though I make a full end of all nations, whither I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. Okay, in the King James Version, like I said, Jeremiah chapter 33 is after the fall of Jerusalem, and Jeremiah 31 before it, The fall of Jerusalem in the King James Version actually does happen in Jeremiah chapter 32. I'm not entirely sure. I think the sequence is the same in the Septuagint, except that the chapters are in a different place. But the sequence of those three chapters is the same. 31, 32, in fact, four chapters, 30, 31, 32, 33. That's a digression. It's a distraction, but this is just before the destruction of Jerusalem, this um, promise of a new covenant. It's also a promise that the other nations are going to get destroyed, isn't it? The the nations that they're going to get spread among, they they will all get destroyed, but the nations of Israel will prevail, as always. They're just being punished. Absolutely. Um, This is also repeated later in Jeremiah, Um, in Jeremiah chapter 46, as we shall see. So we will basically repeat this concept momentarily. But we have um, threatening, we have God threatening to destroy Jerusalem and take the people into captivity in many places in Jeremiah up to this point. And to destroy the city totally, we see that in the broken bottle nation prophecy, which I think might be in um, Jeremiah chapter chapter 19, if I'm not mistaken, well, which I might be, but it's, it's in there somewhere, <laughs> that's for certain, that the um, right here, we have a promise of the fact that these people are also going to be scattered, just like the the, the Israelites before them were, were in, in the northern ten tribes and the environs of Judah were scattered, were taken into captivity and scattered, that these people are also going, going to be scattered, but they will be corrected 
they will not be altogether unpunished, right? But they will be corrected. Yet I will not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee. And then the next promise is of a New Testament in Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And we could even elaborate on that if, if, if I don't know if you can um, read more, but, but that new covenant with the house, that's a family. A house is a family. And even though that the entire nation is an extended family of, of tribes by this time, right? There's still a family. They still all came from the same um, 12 brothers. So even though they're a, a, a large nation by this time, and by this time there are actually many nations already, uh, as we discussed last week with the Romans and the Trojans and the Illyrians and, and the Dorian Greeks and the Phoenicians, there are already many nations by this time, but there's still a family. And a house is basically a family, an extended family. And we still use the word house to mean a family today in, in common English vernacular. So we have the family of Israel and the family of Judah. A new covenant would be made with them. Those same two families that Yahweh cast off, as it's described in Jeremiah chapter 33, and, and in many other places. So who else could the new who else could claim a portion of the new covenant? I guess these Judeo Christians is it they must just say, well well if we have faith in Jesus then then we are Israel or, or we are the house of Judah. It, but it it, it just well, doesn't make sense. Defying the meaning of the words. If you left a will for your children how could some Kafir come into, in, into your land and come across your house and break into it and, and take your will and imagine that it applies to him? How could that happen? That's what That's a testament what is. That's what a testament is as well, isn't it? A will, a testament, the Old Testament, the New Testament. It's a testament. For one, one person, one people. Absolutely. And, and the same thing with the covenant. If you sign a contract, let, let's, say, let, let's say Radio Arian, right? Let, let's say you sign a contract with Alex Jones so that you could play some InfoWars content once a day on, on your internet site, right? And you pay for that. Let's say you're paying them 20 bucks a day so that you could play his content. How can I, let, let's say, Bill, you want to see my contract I made with, Alan jo with Alex Jones? And I say, sure, Sven, let me check it out. Now, how could I read your contract and imagine that I could play that content on Christogenia on your $20 a day? How could I do that? It's a contract. A covenant is a contract. It's a legal binding contract. Oh, you just have to say you have faith in Paul Joseph Watson, and, and there you go. It's yours. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what they're doing. 
<laughs> but Paul in Galatians chapter 3 says that the contract can't be changed. The covenant is immutable. And they pervert that. They pervert the meaning of all these words, these Judeo-Christians, these traditional Christians, pervert the meaning of all these words. Because the, the message of Christian identity, what was basically persecuted out of existence in the first century, In, in the first century, you have Paul of Tarsus proclaiming to all of these places that he goes, to the Galatians, to the Corinthians, to the Romans, that they are the physical seed of Abraham, that they are the scattered Israelites being reconciled to God. Paul proclaims that throughout all of his epistles. But in the second century, you have Justin Martyr. Now, Justin Martyr was a Samaritan Christian who was taught his Christianity by Judeans from Jerusalem. That's where the Samaritans got their Christianity from. They hated Paul of Tarsus because they thought that Paul was doing away with the law and Paul was doing away with their rituals. They hated him. So Justin Martyr, if you examine his writing, never quotes Paul of Tarsus. He has no concept of the true meaning of Christianity, the true meaning of the prophets. Everything that Justin Martyr knows came from the Judaizers, and the, the Judaic interpretations of Christianity, he is ignorant of Paul of Tarsus. He's ignorant that Paul had taught the um, true literal fulfillment of the prophets to the nations of the offspring of Abraham. And Justin Martyr teaches replacement theology in the second century. But it's not the Christianity of Paul. It's not the Christianity of Luke. It's not even the Christianity of Peter, as we shall see in this series. I would have hoped it continued a bit longer. I mean, with uh, what, Joseph of Arimathea and uh, Aristobulus coming over to Britain and King Lucius uh, making the nation Christian in, in, what, 150 AD. I, I would have hoped that the Celtic Church actually began like this. And then um, with the amalgamation with Rome from sort of the 4th century onwards, then maybe it went. You know, I know there isn't much evidence for that, but I, you know, I just hope that it, you know, there is a way it could have lasted, and that could have been why, the, you know, one of the reasons why the Celtic Church was sort of cut off from the rest of it, because they they did have in their liturgies, didn't they? They had mention of Eve sleeping with a serpent. Right, but you know, even Justin Martyr, as we've demonstrated, Justin Martyr had elements of what we call two seed line, and so did Tertullian, but the Church didn't follow them. The later Roman Catholic Church didn't follow them. The later Roman Catholic Church followed after Clement of Alexandria and Origen, who were basically Gnostics in a lot of ways. They had a lot of Gnostic ideas. And they, they spiritualized all that. 
It must have been where they didn't they understand it. By seed. I'm sorry. I was just thinking it must have been where they, where they didn't under where they didn't understand it. So they thought, well, it must be spiritual. Would you think it was deliberately done? Yes, they didn't understand it. They didn't understand it because, and and there's many reasons for this, and this could probably be a whole podcast. I've already done podcasts on this topic. Paul of Tarsus was the individual chosen to bring by God, and this is very explicit in the book of Acts, in chapter 9, for instance, to bring the message of the gospel to the lost sheep to the dispersed nations of the children of Israel. There are some mistranslations or poor translations in the King James Version, which slightly obfuscate that fact, but it's nevertheless a fact. And the mistranslations don't stand once somebody truly examines the original Greek language of Paul's epistles. The new covenant was made with the house, the family, and with the house, the family of Israel and Judah. Identity Christians take this seriously. Identity Christians understand these words to mean what they meant when they were spoken what they meant when they were first written by the prophets. We don't twist or pervert the meanings of these words in order to come up with some strange theology that applies the promises of Abraham to niggers and street shitters. We can't do that. That's dishonest. That's a horrible sin. That is reading the word of God and spitting in his face. Oh, no, you didn't mean what it says. You meant this other thing over here. No, we can't do that. We have to accept that it means what it says. Over and over again, that a house is a family, that seed means literal offspring, that father means a literal ancestor. You might want to read this last passage of Jeremiah before we um, leave the New Testament explanation of, of this relationship for our next program, I, I gather. Okay, this is uh, Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 28. Fear thou not, O Jacob, my servant, saith the Lord, for I am with thee, for I will make a full end of all the nations whither I have driven thee, but I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure. Yet will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. So wherever the children of Israel were scattered, Yahweh God has promised to make a full end of those nations. Now, a nation, and once again, this goes back to the plain meanings of words. A nation is not a government. A nation is not a geographical area. A nation is an extended people group. 
so to make a full land of all the people groups where I have driven me means to make a full end of all the people where the children of Israel would be scattered. That's the promise in Jeremiah chapter 30. That's the promise in Jeremiah chapter 46. You don't make a full end of people groups by converting them. How else could that be? The people groups are Babylonians, weren't they? <laughs> Babylonians and Assyrians, and you know there were there were a full end was made of all of them. Well, well, yes, but I mean, Israel still scattered across the world. A full end was made of the Assyrians, right? They're all basically sand niggers now. A full end was made of, of the nations to where these Israelites were originally scattered. But that's not all the places where he has driven them. It says they'll be driven to all the ends of the earth, doesn't it? Like the horns of well, the right. Eventually, the seed of Abraham will in inherit the entire earth exclusively, according to these promises. But the ultimate fulfillment does not come until we encounter the time of the marriage supper of the Lamb and prophecies that are also paralleled in Micah chapter 4, in um, Obadiah verses 15 and 16, and, and in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. So it, it's there are other prophecies in play. Israel is still in a scattered state. And all of these things are still waiting for fulfillment. But our redemption is in Christ. And Christ only came for these scattered people of Israel. Otherwise, this, this might say, for I will convert all the nations where I have driven thee. But that's not what it says. Or I'll put the put my law in 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 the hearts of the of the nations where I have driven thee. Right. And that's not what it says. So this is the Old Testament marriage relationship of Yahweh God to the people of Israel. And when we return, we will explain this same thing as it is evident in the New Testament. And we will also, I already have a note that we should, when we encounter Roman chapter, Romans chapter 4, tarry on the sacrifice of Isaac and explain the significance of that. Excellent. I look forward to it. Thank you, Sven. Praise Yahweh. God bless.